Amen. You're glad your chains are off tonight? Because of God's amazing love, His grace and His mercy and the finished work of His Son on Calvary. Thank you, brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we never get over what Jesus did for us on the cross. As we come to the table after this time in your word, I pray that it would be fresh, it would be new, it would be real, as we reflect on the cost of our redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing. Thank you, Father, for sending him. And thank you that because he came and because he paid the price in full and rose from the dead, that we are not left as orphans, but the Spirit of God has been given to each of us who know Christ as Savior. And the Spirit of God is resident within each of us, never to leave, to be performing His work of conforming us to the image of Jesus. And so, Lord, tonight as we are in Your Word, we pray that You would chip off of me and of my brothers and sisters anything that doesn't look like Jesus. And we pray this in His name together. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53. We want to consider a couple of verses in Isaiah 53. As you're turning there, I'd like to remind you that God the Holy Spirit moved Isaiah to write his book uh, 700 years before Christ. 700 years before the Phoenicians invented crucifixion. 700 years before the first Christmas. And the question I would like to address this evening, because more than one of you have asked me, is based on verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The question essentially is, do we look to the atonement, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, to be our healing from physical diseases? Is the blood of Christ uh, efficacious, effective in the healing of physical diseases? Should we pray the blood of Jesus on cancer or epilepsy or any other disease? I think to answer that question, uh, we need to look at the first preceding verses of Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Still with Messiah, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The context of these first six verses of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah all have to do with sin, all have to do with human transgressions, all have to do with people's iniquities. Physical ailments are not in these verses. Surely, verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows, our griefs over our sins, our sorrows over our sins he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through, that is through crucifixion, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being with respect to our sin being forgiven fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Not physically, but spiritually. Not at an auxiliary level, not at an effects of sin level with physical healing, but rather at the heart of the issue, the core of the problem, our sin. Verse 6 makes this very clear, the near context to the verse in question. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so the bottom line conclusion of our study tonight is that Christ's blood is not for the healing of our diseases, but Christ's blood is for the cleansing of our sin. But I want to develop this a little bit more with you because there's a lot more to be said. You have some headings. I hope you received a little handout tonight. The first heading is man, mankind, I mean by man. And there are two points under man. One is man's problem, sin, And the other is man's prognosis, we will sin. If you go with me to Genesis 3, the infamous chapter of God's word that depicts and reports on initial original sin, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11, they have sinned, they have partaken of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they have disobeyed God and they are hiding, which is rather ridiculous that we would think we could hide from God, who's everywhere and knows everything, but they were hiding, sensing that they were naked because what was once something they were not ashamed of, they became ashamed of because of sin, and they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, and religion's been trying to cover our nakedness ever since in human effort, but God slayed an animal and put animal skin to cover their nakedness to picture that blood is required to pay for sin, even back in Genesis 3. So mankind's problem is sin, 3.11. And he said, who said that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of, the, uh, of which I commanded you not to eat? Mankind's problem back in Genesis 3 remains mankind's problem this evening in the Bahamas, in the world, sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. 
But it's not just that mankind has a problem called sin, but mankind has a prognosis. When you go to the doctor and the doctor says there's something wrong with you and he tells you what's wrong with you, and then he gives you a prognosis. If you take your medicine, you will get better probably. If you exercise and lose some weight, you probably will do all right with this ailment. Or you have six months to live. What is the prognosis for sinners? Well, even sinners that God spared in the garden... The prognosis for Adam and Eve was that they would, would sin beyond Genesis 3. They wouldn't uh, stop sinning. They had fallen into sin. They had a pattern of sin. They had an inclination now to rebel against God, and they were going to sin, and they did. And so did their offspring, all the way down to you and me. So man's prognosis would be that we will sin, and God, in his great love, in his great power, in his great provision, gives us a wonderful messianic promise as early as Genesis 3, verse 16. When God said to the woman, to the woman God said, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The desire here in in 16 is not a, a sensual desire for a wife or a husband. It is a Hebrew word that meant a desire to compete against a desire to usurp, a desire to get the upper hand on. And so God said to Eve, not only are you going to have pain having babies, but your bent from now on will be to get one leg up on your husband, to try to lead him like you did to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I might add. So mankind is a problem and it's sin. And mankind has a prognosis that we will continue to sin until we see Jesus face to face. The second heading in our outline is physical sickness. How should we look at physical sickness? When we become sick, how should we interpret that? When someone we love in our family becomes sick, how should we understand that? When someone in our church family is told that they are very seriously sick, how should we talk with them about their sickness. Well, I have several points under that heading of physical sickness. And the first is that sometimes, not always, hear me, sometimes, not always, physical sickness is God's punishment. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 and verse 8. David has sinned with Bathsheba. He has been crushed with conviction of that sin, and he's praying to God. And in Psalm 51.8, he describes how he was feeling before he confessed. When he was hiding his sin, covering his tracks, murdering her husband. Verse 8, praying to God, David said, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. God didn't literally break David's bones when he was covering his tracks of adultery and murder, but figuratively, he had lost all his joy. He had lost all his gladness in relationship with God, and he likens it to having broken, crushed bones. And sometimes we are physically sick because God is trying to get our attention. I'm not saying that every time a person is physically sick, 
it's punishment from God, but sometimes it is. Also, 1 Corinthians 11.30, we come to the Lord's table tonight, and we ought to come with some understandings and some sobriety. Sometimes physical sickness is God's punishment. It was in Corinth. What a messed up church they were. One man was sleeping with his stepmother. They were taking each other to court, suing each other. They were carnal. They were fleshly. They couldn't receive the meat of the word. They were just apt for the milk of the word. It was a messed up church. They were getting drunk at the communion table. They were not waiting for each other to partake of the elements of the communion table. They were racing ahead in rudeness and self-centeredness. And when we come to 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul warns them about unruliness at coming to the communion table. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep because they weren't examining themselves for unconfessed sin when they came to the communion table because they were tolerating sin in their lives and thinking it was okay and rationalizing it, comparing themselves to others. I'm not as bad as him. God said, for that reason, Corinth, many among you are weak, and some of you are sick, and a number sleep, which was a soft landing way of saying they're dead. God struck them dead because they had unconfessed sin in their lives that they refused to confess. And so sometimes, physical sickness is God's punishment for rebellious sinning. But there's bigger purposes in physical sickness than merely punishment. The second thing is God has a purpose in our physical illnesses. Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things, including physical illness, and God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Will you notice that God has one purpose? Not more than one purpose. All of you and me, God has dictated, prescribed, ordered, planned out one purpose. What is it? Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, watch it, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose. God is working in our lives increment by increment, inch by inch, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year. God is working in each of our lives to affect and to accomplish his purpose, which is to make us conformed to the image of his son, to make us Christ-like. God, verse 28, causes all things, all means all, God causes all things to work together for the good. God causes physical sickness and other things as well. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, singular, for whom he foreknew he also predestined, watch it, to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so part of the purpose of physical sickness 
is God's purpose of conforming the person who gets physically sick to the image of Jesus. But there's more. Not only is physical sickness sometimes God's punishment and always God's purpose, it can also be God's program. God's program, 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We are not told in Scripture what it is. I think that's so that we'll understand that we can have thorns in the flesh of a variety. He had this thorn in the flesh and he prayed that it be taken away. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to me, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me and to keep me from exalting myself. He had a vision that no one else really had to see of parts of heaven. And to keep him from exalting himself, Paul concluded God gave him some thorn in the flesh, some physical ailment, some medical problem. Verse 8, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may, be, may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God's program often is that we would have physical challenge, pain, disease, so that his strength would be showcased in our weakness. So that we would come to look at someone in the eye who's just been diagnosed with cancer and say, God's grace has been sufficient for me, and I know that God's grace will be sufficient for you. But there's more. There's more about physical sickness. There, it can be God's picture. God's picture, going back to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, physical sickness was a picture, an MRI an x-ray of the spiritual state of the Corinthians. Physical sickness can be God's picture. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If you come to the communion table tonight and you ignore the opportunities of silent reflection to give you the chance to confess unconfessed sin tonight, you're on thin ice, we say in Canada. Anything could happen. A person who comes to the communion table eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The Holy Spirit saying, you stole in that business transaction and you say to him before taking communion, oh, everybody does it. Watch out. Watch out. For he who eats and drinks, 29, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. 
But if we judged ourselves rightly, that is, if we let the Holy Spirit examine our lives for unconfessed sin when we come to communion, if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. I wouldn't let my child partake of communion until my child understood that. My child might be a Christian, a born-again believer, but until the child understands the severity and the sobriety and the seriousness of communion, I wouldn't have my child partake of communion until I taught him that. Sickness, sometimes God's punishment, always God's purpose, always God's program, always God's picture, and lastly, God's prompter. Physical sickness can be God's prompter for us to... uh, Let the leadership of the local church we are a part of to minister to us. And in James 5, 13 to 16, watch this. If anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. If it is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The pastors of our fellowship just within the last 10 days or so were asked by a sister in Christ to pray over her physical illness. And we were glad to do that. We had her come to my study and we anointed her head with a little oil in obedience to James 5 and we prayed for her affliction. She told us before we prayed what her affliction was and we prayed specifically that God would heal her. And I got word from her some days after that that she was feeling quite a bit better. Physical sickness is God's prompter to the sick person to ask for the ministry of the pastors or elders of a church or his church to pray. Okay, so we have man, we have physical sickness. Now let's go to Christ's blood, because remember the question is, is Christ's blood efficacious, spilled for physical healing? And I've been answering no. Well, what was Christ's blood shed for? Well, precious things. In the first place, Christ's blood redeems. 1 Peter 1, 18. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. We have been redeemed not by money. We have been redeemed by the precious shed blood of Jesus. I've touched before that To be redeemed is to be purchased by Christ's blood out of the slave marketplace of sin so you're set free to do God's bidding. That's redemption. And it's all based on the shed blood of Christ. So Christ's blood redeems, but there's more. Christ's blood restores. Romans 5, 9. 
Romans 5, 9, Christ's blood restores, Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We've been justified. We've been declared innocent by God because of the shed blood of Christ. God looks at the shed blood of Jesus, applies it over your sins, past, present, and future, and says, I declare you innocent. I declare you righteous. Christ's blood restores, takes us out of being deserving of God's wrath, destined for God's wrath to being justified. That's because of the blood of Jesus. Third, Jesus' blood ransoms. It pays our sin debt. Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. The shed blood of Jesus Christ pays your sin debt to God. If it didn't, then we'd have to pay for our own sin debt to God. And the only way to pay for our own sin debt is to go to hell for eternity in conscious torment. Jesus' blood rubs clean. I had to find an R, so <laughs> rubs clean. Can cleanses. First uh, John uh, 1, 6 and 7. First John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Christ rubs you clean. It cleanses you. But there's more. The blood of Jesus renews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in the Old Testament dispensation, in the Old Testament economy that God had set up, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers temporarily covered over sin, then how much more will the blood of Christ the Messiah permanently wash us clean of sin? And so the blood of Christ renews us even to the point of clearing our consciences. But there's more. The blood of Jesus reconciles Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace 
who made both groups into one, that is Jewish believers and Gentile believers, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Jesus Christ's blood reconciles us to God. It makes peace between the believer and God without God compromising his character, his holiness, his perfection. What a genius, what a plan, what a savior. What blood. The blood of Jesus rules. The blood of Jesus rules. Revelation 12, verse 11. The scene is the future tribulation time on the earth. The church has been raptured and is in glory with Christ, but there's unprecedented judgments poured out on those who are yet remain on earth during the seven years of tribulation. And in Revelation 12, 11, we read, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. Those who turn to Christ for salvation in the future tribulation will overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb. Jesus' blood overcomes Satan. So we've seen man, we've seen physical sickness, we've seen Christ's blood. Now we want to see bad results from wrong beliefs. If you believe in error, that Christ's blood is to heal you of a disease, there are some spin-offs that can really be less than ideal. Disobedience. If you believe that the blood of Christ should cure your cancer and you pray in faith for the blood of Christ to be applied to your cancer and you are not healed, there are aspects and times in which you might find yourself being disobedient. He didn't do anything for me. Disappointment. I know some believers who believe that the blood of Christ is for their physical illnesses and they prayed the blood of Christ on those illnesses and he has not delivered them or healed them from the illnesses and they've walked out on the church. They've walked out on the Lord of the church. They've deserted. These are all serious, but I think the most serious one is the last one. If we come to the wrong understanding about what the blood of Christ was shed for, and we come to think that it was shed for our physical diseases, and we ask God to apply the blood of his son to our diseases, and we are not healed, then we can be debilitated in the Christian life, paralyzed, hung up, roadblocked with false guilt. I mean, if you believe that Jesus shed his blood to make you physically well, and you are not physically well, and you've asked his blood to make you physically well, and you are not physically well, then would you not be tempted to think that I must have unforgiven sin in my life? Seeking the Lord to see if we have unforgiven, unconfessed sin in our life is valuable. But what if you are confessed up? What if you do not know of any sin that you have not admitted to God but you're still not well and you've prayed for the blood of Christ to make you well. Well then, 
you have false guilt. You have false guilt about sin you've not committed. You think, I must have forgotten something. Guess what? Jesus has paid for the sins you've forgotten. And so I have known Christians who have thought that if they prayed the blood of Jesus on their disease, that he would heal them. And if he didn't heal them, they would come to me and say, I must have unconfessed sin in my life, and I would help them. I would pray with them. i say, Ask the Holy Spirit to search you and try you to see if there's any wicked way in you and to lead you in the way everlasting. And they do that and they say, I can't think of anything, Pastor. The Holy Spirit's not showing me any unconfessed sin in my life. I said, well then, he's fully capable of showing you. Then I guess there isn't any unconfessed sin in your life right now. Praise the Lord. But if they walk out my door, believing that the blood of Jesus is to cure them, of a disease, and they don't get cured, then they think, I must be guilty. You see, theology matters. What we believe about God and his will as found in his word really, really matters because this is an example that if you get it wrong about the blood, you can get it wrong about sanctification. You can get it wrong about love of God. You can get it wrong about a lot of things. And so when you hear a preacher pray for the blood of Christ over physical illnesses, I don't believe he's biblical. And so the bottom line of this study is that it's in the name of the Lord, but not by the blood of the Lord. Go with me to Acts 3, please. Acts 3. In verse 6, Jesus has ascended back to his Father's right hand. He has sent the Holy Spirit uh, to be the comforter, to be the power for witnessing to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. The Spirit of God has come to live in believers uh, in a in a systematic way, and as the gospel went out from Jerusalem to Judea, there were tongues, and as it went from Judea to Samaria, there were tongues, and it went from Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth, there were tongues, and tongues have ceased now because the authenticity and the genuineness of the gospel no longer needs to be proven by someone being able to speak a known language that is previously unknown to them. That's tongues, by the way, not gibberish, not an unintelligible language. But in the course of Acts, when the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, some of them had the apostolic gift of healing. They could raise the dead. The apostles could heal a person by their shadow. I do not believe that anyone on earth at this time has the apostolic sign gift of healing. I don't believe anybody on earth today can heal someone with their shadow or raise the dead. I believe God still heals as we pray and ask him in faith. And if it's in accordance with his will and purpose for the sick person, God can heal. I believe that. But look at chapter 3, verse 6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. There was a man they met who couldn't walk. Couldn't have walked for a long time. In verse 4, in verse 5, 
This man came to the apostles' attention, and he wanted silver, and he wanted gold. And Peter said, I don't have either, but what I do have, I have apostolic authority, and in Jesus' name, be healed. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And he walked. And the point in all this is that it's in the name of the Lord that the apostles did that, not by the blood of the Lord. Peter didn't say to him, I apply the blood of Christ on your lameness. He said, in the name of the Lord, walk. And he walked. So what do we do if we're sick? I know some of you probably are physically ill tonight. And if it's not you yourself, you know someone you love who's physically sick. What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we pray. It's always right to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, it says, pray without ceasing. When you're healthy, pray. When you're ill, pray. Pray. You're always right to pray. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, we looked at Paul's thorn in the flesh in that passage. He said, three times I prayed for the Lord to take the thorn away. When you are sick, pray. Pray for the Lord to heal you. Ask him to heal you. Second, if necessary, when you are sick, confess your sin. Not all sickness is related to God punishing sin in your life, but some is. And so in James 5, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So when you're sick, let the Spirit of God search your heart for unconfessed sin. And if you have unconfessed sin, confess it to God. Confession, the word confess in the New Testament is homo legeo. Homo means the same and legeo means to say. So when we confess our sin, we say the same thing about our sin as God does. So let me give you a proper confessional prayer and one that is improper. A proper confessional prayer is, Lord, when I lied to my wife on Thursday, it was sin. And then as God forgives you, you need to go to your wife and say, Beth, on Thursday I lied to you. I sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? That's biblical confession. Here's what's not biblical confession. Lord, if I've ever done anything wrong today, please forgive me. That's not saying the same thing about sin as God says. So if you are sick, Get with the Lord and say, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin in me? And then I wait. The Holy Spirit has never been late in answering that. He doesn't speak audibly to me, but he leaves a real strong impression on my heart. If I have, un- if I have unconfessed sin in my life and I ask the Holy Spirit to show it to me, bang! He shows me every time. And if I wait a couple seconds and there's nothing impressed on my heart, I think, thank you, Lord, by your grace, I'm clean. <laughs> I'm all right. Right now, I'm clean. And so, if you're sick, pray. If you're sick, 
search your heart. If you need to confess sin, confess it. Still in James 5, if your sin call the, or sick, call the elders to pray. Ask the pastors of our church to pray for you. Come into my study. We'll make a time and we'll anoint you with oil and we will pray for you. If you're physically sick, wait on the Lord. It's always right to wait on the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Concerning this, that is the messenger of Satan, that is the thorn in the flesh. Concerning this, I entreated. That means I begged. I begged the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he waited on the Lord he was in his prayer closet and looking to the Lord. He was asking the Lord. He was waiting on the Lord. It's always right to wait on the Lord. If you're sick, worship in the Word. If you're too sick to come to the sanctuary on Collins Avenue, then you worship the Lord in the Word in your home or in your hospital room or in your nursing home. Wait on the Lord. Worship the Lord in the Word of God Jesus prayed for his disciples before the cross, and by extension, Jesus Christ prayed for you and me to his Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus is saying that if his followers will get into his book and worship him in studying the word of God, not commentaries about the word of God, but the Bible, then he will set us apart for his possession and use. And when you're physically sick, you especially need to be set apart for God's possession and use. Worship in the Word. Worship with God's people. Again, if you are able, if your physical sickness does not prevent you from coming here, then come here. Be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't absent yourself from public worship services because you don't feel 100%. Worship with God's people. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised us is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God has given you a church family. You're loved in this church family. You are needed in this church family. And if you can physically get to worship with your church family on a Lord's Day, then do it. Don't stay home with a pity party. If you are physically strong enough to get to worship with God's people here on a Sunday, then come on out. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. You know the old uh, illustration of the campfire, right? And you have these pieces of wood burning in a nice campfire and they're glowing and they're turning white hot and there's orange and there's flames and eventually 
the flames subside with time and the charcoal and the embers, embers are there and you're still warm and it's still pretty. And then you notice what happens when a log snaps in the heat and part of that log that was a charcoal is kicked away by the heat, away from the other embers. You know what happens if you don't take a poker and you don't push that piece that was thrown away from the other embers back into the heat of the, of the live embers, it just dies out. A puff of smoke eventually. The person who's physically ill who sees that as a reason to excuse himself from public worship, if he's physically able to come to public worship, is like that ember, he will eventually not lose salvation, but eventually lose effectiveness in worship and obedience because they are having a pity party. What to do if you're sick? Pray. Confess sin. Call the elders to pray, wait on the Lord, worship in God's word, worship with God's people, and last, look to minister to others. What? When I'm physically sick, look to minister to others? Yeah. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, even if you're sick, chances are you can speak on the phone. Even if you're sick, chances are you could pray about who to phone, and you could phone them and see how they're doing and and pray for them. Jesus first. Others second, yourself last. That's joy. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word and for the real help it is to us to understand the blood of Jesus, why it was shed, why it was not shed. Lord, help us to believe you at your word that there are reasons for physical sickness If we are contending with that, give us your grace in accordance with your will and flawless purpose. I would ask for healing of those who are physically sick in the sound of my voice. But Lord, I thank you that you are good and that you are wise and that you waste no brush strokes on the canvas of the portraits of our lives. Help us, Lord, to allow you to chip off of each of us anything that doesn't look like Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.